1 Samuel chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. If you want to turn your Bibles there as we begin a new series, as we're going to be looking at the life of David for the late part of this spring and throughout this summer. And so we're going to be focusing on First and Second Samuel for the vast majority of that series. And so I want to give you a little bit of an introduction for the next two weeks. We'll call a preface to the life of David of sorts uh, for this week and next week. This week we'll look at Hannah and the next week at Saul. But First and Second Samuel is actually one book in two parts. Um, the theme is, runs throughout, and if you could categorize or, or label for Samuel, the theme of the whole of these, of these books, it would be this, is Israel needs a true and better king. Israel needs a true and better king, and that's what we're going to find in David, one who is a good king, and much, there's much change in the life of Israel because a good king takes to the throne and serves them well. What we find in 1 Samuel is for a book that's going to be about kingship, we start in a place that's quite the opposite of kingship. We start not with a king, but with a barren and bereft and grieving woman. 1 Samuel chapter 1 is where I'm going to read this morning. I'll read through verse 20 and then jump down and begin chapter 2 and read Hannah's song in verses 1 through 10. Read along in your own Bibles, which I hope you have. If you don't have one, you're all good because we got it up on the screen for you. I'll read out loud. You read along with me. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Sophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jorah, Jerohoam, sound it out, son of Pronounce all the syllables. Um, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Did you hear that? Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up every year, year by year, from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of, e- of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah stood sacrifice, he would give portions to his wife, to Penina, his wife, and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son... Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, her great fear. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. 
Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. They, then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his, Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Then jump down to chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and we hear Hannah's song. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. The Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren have borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up, from the, up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This sends the reading of God's words. The grass will and the flower fade, but the word of our God, may it stand forever. Well, as a way of introduction of sorts, our first, but also a first point, we want to begin where, where the passage begins, which is Hannah's sorrow. Hannah's sorrow. Hannah's had enough, quite frankly. Enough. This is the biggest religious event of the year. The trek to Shiloh, which is where Israel originally was set up the tabernacle. That's where they worshipped and they made sacrifices. The tabernacle in Shiloh is the place where God is at. It's where the Ark of the Covenant is at. It's where the priests would sacrifice and lead the people in worship. It's where you met with God and you made sacrifices. And you did it amidst a, a wonderful party in which all the people of Israel are coming together. It's like a f- large family reunion. It should be a great time, and yet we see that Hannah, Hannah is forlorn. She is grieving. She is sad. This is supposed to be a festival of feasting and joy and togetherness. And she had everything that you would think an 1100 BC woman should have. She's got a doting husband, we'll call him that, a doting husband in Elkanah. And he was most likely, at the, at the, as a Levite, and is a, also as a man who has two wives, he was at least middle class, if not upper middle class. Life should be good for Hannah. Yet she has some, some serious issues. The first being that she had to share her husband. You know, in the Bible, some people look at the, at the Bible and they look at the Old Testament and see all these godly men who've got multiple wives and they go, why in, what in the world is the deal with that? And why hasn't God spoken a lot more about multiple wives being a bad thing? And, you know, the Bible actually says, speaks very loudly through narrative because every time we see somebody have multiple wives... It goes really badly. So no ideas about having your own sister-wife show. It's not good. And with the, but what's really distressing for Hannah is this. That not only does she have a sister-wife, but the sister-wife is difficult to deal with. She's a woman, Panana is, with a big mouth, and a woman who has gone out of her way to be an utter pain in the keister to Hannah. 
And more than anything, the, the biggest distress to Hannah is this, is that Penina is a fertile myrtle. She has given birth to a whole baseball team. And as you have seen in this, and it says it very plainly and starkly and bluntly, Hannah has no children. No children. Hannah was barren. Barrenness is not something that we talk about a whole lot, although we ought to because it's one of the most critical and significant themes in the scriptures. The way God brings life even in dead places. We should talk about it now because it is a critical issue for so many of you. There are many in this room who have walked the road of wrestling with infertility issues. It is a quiet, often hidden, but very devastating and widespread concern for many people in God's church. In fact, my experience is of my, I was doing a catalog this week and just thinking about it. Of my probably five closest friends, three of them have had significant infertility issues. Not to mention there are many single men and women in this room who would like to be married and like to have children by now. <laughs> you think, uh, I don't know if I can have kids or not, but God's not really giving me a whole lot of opportunity. <laughs> and I want one of those. Well, as, as difficult as barrenness and infertility issues are today, in the ancient world is even more significant. If you wanted to have status as a woman, you had to have a child. And many children, in fact. If you wanted to have wealth, then you had to have children. If you wanted to survive in many ways, you had to have a child. In fact, they would have 10 to 12 children simply to get three to four to live to adulthood so those children could grow up and provide for them in their old age. Remember, this is not, there's no social security system. Your kids are your social security system. They would be the ones who provide for you in your old age. This is your future retirement plans. And not only that, it was actually a matter of national security. In these small tribal states and small nations and in which you have to raise up large armies and you can't depend on, on great technology necessarily, what do you need? You need lots of babies because the more babies you have, they grow up into people who can go to war and defend you. Therefore, the women who had children and lots of children were not just seen as heroes and wondrous in their family and their tribe, but were actually seen as heroes in their whole nations, which is why in the ancient Near East you find many places in ancient Near Eastern cultures that they worshiped women not necessarily for their beauty, but for their fertility, for their ability to give birth. And But those who couldn't have children, it was drastically different. As a woman back then, you were in a second, second, state, second status, a lower status, and if you couldn't have kids, then what were you here for? Then you were seen as worthless. You were merely just taking up food and space in fact, we even, I pointed it out there really briefly. Hannah's concern, I think, is articulated. And when Eli speaks to her, she says, the first thing that comes out of her mouth is, don't think I'm a worthless woman. Because this is part of her identity. One commentator has written that not having a son in the ancient Near East was the single most, the single most ultimate tragedy a woman could experience. And in fact, in the Jewish Talmud, which was kind of Jewish laws, cultural laws that they had developed, a person without a child was considered as good as dead. A woman who was barren, that was grounds for divorce. They were seen as failures because they had not done the one crucial thing they had to do as a woman, which is produce children. And Penina functions as the daily voice of the culture. The daily voice, the go, the jabs into Hannah's chest every single day and in her side saying, Oh my goodness, if you could only have kids, then you would be worth something, Hannah. 
And this distressed Hannah to the end of her emotional rope. In fact, this passage goes out of its ways. It uses various terms to describe her distress. And she says she's distressed. She's embittered. In fact, we see that she's not even eating before she runs off and prays. And in fact, in verse 6, it says that Hannah would provoke her to this word, to irritability or irritation. Now, we look at that and we think, well, that's just kind of low-level anger. Someone cuts you off in traffic, that's irritability. That's not what she's experiencing. The Hebrew word that is actually under this word irritable is the same word that they use for storm. It's that we, in fact, the only other time we see it in the Old Testament is used for a hurricane. That this is what is going on inside of Hannah. That this, the culture pressing down on her, her worthlessness, and Hannah being this prov- provocation in her life is bringing such a degree of emotional agony that this is a storm swirling inside of her heart. It was difficult to be a woman back then. A patriarchal society where your worth was objectified to having children. Aren't you glad we aren't like this anymore? Isn't it a good thing that our culture never objectifies women now? (laughs) That people are not viewed in their worth by their utilitarianism and their functionality. Aren't we glad that we're so much more sophisticated than this? Those evil, patriarchal, chauvinistic, and oppressive cultures were so much better. Oh, wait. What we have done is we have put worthlessness and the things that we look at and say, you have to be this, this, and this. And we've taken it for women and saying, man, it's just your, you know, whether you can have a child. And we've now expanded it out to any number of things. How do you look? Are you married? Do you work and take care of your children? We have, we have put the standards of what is valuable, and we've put it on steroids. Our culture is constantly telling us how, how we can be worthwhile and valuable, and constantly telling us that we don't measure up. So, but this is a sweet story, isn't it? That's all about bad news. This is a sweet story. This is the kind of story that you learn about in Sunday school, because what happens by the end of the story? Hannah gets her baby. She gets her baby. And at the end, she's a woman who's crying out at the beginning. But at the end, what's happening? She's singing a praise song. She goes from sorrow to singing, from despair to delight. Now, it's interesting. We're going to talk about kings in First and Second Samuel. It's going to be about this great king that we need. Why in the world have we begin here? Now, there's two reasons. There's, there's, a, there's a historical reason. Let me talk about that first. The reason why the writer of Samuel begins here is because actually what he's doing in the story of Hannah is he is providing a vignette of the life of Israel. At this time in the history and the life of Israel is they are an oppressed people. They are under the Philistine rule. The Philistines every year during the war season at springtime and summer will enter into Israel, will defeat their armies, will oppress the people, take their crops and tax them heavily. This is the people who are oppressed. They are Penina in physical form. But not only that, but they are a barren people. This is a time in which the people of Israel have terrible leadership. And primarily, they are spiritually and morally barren. You see, Israel, when they entered the promised land nearly a couple of generations earlier, things were supposed to be great. They were supposed to defeat all the nations around them. They were supposed to be this light to the nations. They were supposed to be this great wealth of morality that all the nations of the world were to come to and say, we want to be like Israel. And yet, what do we find with Israel? Israel is a morally corrupt oppressed people. It would make matters worse. We have this little glimpse into the spiritual life that we're going to see in the next couple of chapters of 1 Samuel is that they are led by who? Eli. 
And we see the dimension, I think in verse 4 here of this text, Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. This is a precursor of the story that we're going to find out about them in the next couple chapters. Hophni and Phinehas are not good guys, and they're supposed to be the spiritually elite. They're the priests, and yet we're going to find in the next couple weeks that they're abusing God's people. They are stealing from them. They are decrepit, gross human beings. And this is who's leading God's people. Israel is a barren, oppressed, fruitless people. But yet, what we're going to see at the end of 2 Samuel is Israel, because God has given them a truer, better king, a good king to serve them, they are gone from a people who are oppressed and fruitless to a people spiritually engaged and ready to build a temple to their glorious God. In other words, what I want you to see is that what we find here in the, same, in the story of Hannah is a, it's a parable. It's a, it's a vignette of what the whole story of First and Second Samuel is about. That's the historical reason why he begins this way. There's another reason. The other reason is to draw you and I in as readers. It is inviting you in. It is saying this. Brothers and sisters, have you ever felt like Hannah? Have you ever felt like Hannah Have you ever lived in the midst of a hopeless situation where your future looks impossible? Have you ever been in a place where you felt worthless, where you felt inadequate, where there was a place in your life where you felt barren? It's inviting you in. You see, if you're a human, you've probably experienced those things at some point or another. This is a literary approach to say, don't you want to hear the story? Don't you want to hear how God provides? Don't you want to see what happens? So what inadequacy is haunting you? In what place do you feel barren? And worthless. In Hannah's story, we find that she goes from sorrow to song, from despair to delight. How does she get there? How does she get there? Well, that's, that's the question. That's the second thing I want us to look at this morning. And the main thing we're going to look at this morning is Hannah's story. Hannah's story, and like any good story, the storyteller tells us, gives us some critical points and junctures that we want to highlight to kind of give us a sense of what is being communicated here. And we begin with this. We begin with Hannah's story and her movement from despair to delight and from sorrow to song with her silent stand. Her silent stand. Here's what I mean by that. There are two voices in this early part of this text that speak to Hannah, that audibly speak to Hannah. One is Penina. Representing the culture that Hannah is living in. She's saying, if you, Hannah, oh, if you wanna, if you wanna be worthwhile and valuable, if you wanna be seen as acceptable, then you need to have children. And if you don't do that, then you're, my goodness, you must, God must not like you. God must not have remembered you. God must have forsaken you. That's one voice. What's the other voice? There's another voice, a voice that we're probably a little bit more familiar with. A voice that we looked at that seems comforting and warm and sweet, but it really is just kind of a dunderhead. It's Elkanah, her husband. And what does he say? In verse 10, when he comes in and says, aren't I better than 10 sons? Don't you know that I love you? And isn't that worth more? Doesn't that just make your life perfect? What a dope. (laughs) Robert Alter, a significant academic commentary, has not talks about the narrative here, and he says it's actually very significant. When you look at these old Hebrew texts and these narratives, the fact is this, is that what we find in Hannah is that she doesn't respond to either of them. Penina tries to provoke her, but all we hear about is her internal worlds. And Elkanah gives, provides himself and says, here, I, I'm here to make you happy. Penina says, if you want to be happy, you've got to have kids. Elkanah says, aren't I enough to make you happy? What you need is a husband to say, to be happy. And yet what we find is she doesn't answer either of these voices. 
You see, here, here's the reality that what we face in this world is there are always going to be voices. There's siren calls from the world that say, if you have me, then that's enough. If you have me, if you have my allegiance, then life will be fulfilling. Then life will be full of purpose. And life will be full of significance. There's so many things in this world. And for, for many of us, right, it's the romance thing. That's what, that's what Okana is offering. Sweet, silly, simple Okana. He's offering romance. You see, that's what we offer. And we offer work and we offer other kind of functionality. Things that we look to to satisfy ourselves. You know, it's interesting. The atheist Ernest Becker writes in his book, Denial of Death, describes this call of the God of romance. He says it this way. He said, the love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? And here's his answer. We want redemption, nothing less. We want to be rid of our faults and of our feeling of nothingness. We might think good romance and exciting sex is better than ten sons. That is, after all, the consistent message of our worlds. That if you have this, if you have beauty, and you lose a little bit of weight, then life will be okay. If I just had that person in my life, that child, that spouse, that friend, then life would be okay. Becker goes on to write in Denial of Death, no human relationship, though, can bear the burden of godhood. You see what he's saying? You see, he actually understands what we do, that what we do is we take spouses and dating relationships and children and work, and we say, you're my God. And I look to you to satisfy me. And Hannah says, no. No, I've been here and I've done that. I've wept enough. Elkanah, as great as you are, you've disappointed me enough. I've learned that as wonderful as you are, you don't satisfy. And Panana, let's not even get started with you. You've made my life a living hell. If I try to seek your God, I will be crushed and I'll end my life so she doesn't speak. She stays silent. Instead, what is her response? I said a silent stand. That's the silence. Well, we see the stand in verse 9. In verse 9, you notice what happens. It says that Elkanah gives her this great option. Aren't I, aren't I good enough? Isn't my love enough? And what does Hannah do? She stands up and leaves. It's actually a technical term that's going, that she, it's, uh, communicating there. It says she arose. It's an idiomatic expression that means she made up her mind for decisive action. This is kind of to, to kind of connect this to our idiomatic statements. It's like she drew a line in the sand. She put her foot down and she pivoted. She said, ah, I'm going that way. And she has decided, no more am I going to listen to these voices. No more am I going to seek satisfaction in these places. I will not be enslaved by what society thinks of me and what society says is my worth and my value. And no, no, neither will I be held captive by what my husband thinks about me. I'm going to go someplace else. And she does something drastic. Something that we would think is perhaps radical. She puts her foot down and says, I'm going to change my life. And what's the radical, drastic step that she takes? She prays. She prays. How many of us, it takes, it, life has to get really bad before we'll pray. Because what we'd rather do is we'd rather go to all the things that we're looking for to satisfy us. We want to ha- meet with that friend over coffee and talk for two hours. And friends, great friends and great community are wonderful. But all the processing and the talking and the talking and the talking to another human being cannot satisfy you. It can help, especially if they're a friend who turns you to the gospel. But ultimately, you have to do what Hannah does. 
which is to come to the end of your rope and say, that's it. There's only one place to go. And that's God. That's the second thing we see in the storyline of Hannah's, this account here, Hannah's cry. In her despondency, in her agony, in her anguish, she cries out to God. And what we see here is an emotional unleashing of the burden. She pours out her heart before the Lord. And verse 10, it says this, she prayed and she wept bitterly. And the image I'd like you to have in your mind is you ever seen, we see it, Sadly, so often, as a Syrian mother whose building has been bombed and they're dragging her child out, and the weeping of a Middle Eastern mother. That's the kind of weeping that we see here. An anguished cry before the Lord. That is so, so different than, than our church tears and the way we approach God. You know, one of the things that's interesting, and the, the commentators will point out here, is that Eli um, says looks at her and, and wonders if she's drunk. This is the high priest. He's never seen someone pray in agony. This is how perfunctory religion has become in Israel. We come in and we say our prayers and we go home. This is the kind of church world we often find ourselves in, the kind of ways that we approach God. You know, one of the worst things that we can encounter is the kind of sickeningly sweet veneer that we put on at church and even in our relationship with God. Some of you have not experienced much with God because you go with him with such a big smile on your face. There's an old hymn that I think describes this well, that our kind of mindset so often. Some of you may remember it if you grew up in the church a long time ago. And here's, here's, here's what the hymn says. It says this, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light... And the burden of my heart rolled away. And then you repeat, you echo, rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I'm what? I'm happy all the day. What a lie, right? Is that what Christians in Egypt and Syria and Morocco are experiencing this morning? Is that the experience of Hannah? No, she's bitter and she's angry and she's going to let God know about it. Hannah is giving us a clinic and a lesson in what biblical authenticity actually looks like. You actually tell God how you feel. But notice, I want you to notice this, and this is a critical, critical turn. She's able to do this because she believes something about the Lord. It is rooted in the fact that the, the, who she is praying to is the Lord of hosts. And she believes that this Lord of hosts hears her. Now, this is important. The Lord of hosts is one of the names of God. It's a technical term that refers to God's rule over the angelic beings and all the cosmic rulers in this world, all the great kings and principalities. It is a term that is describing God's sovereign power over the worlds. It's that transcendent piece that Ed was talking about this morning. And yet, what does she follow up this term? She comes into him and says, oh, Lord of hosts. And yet she follows it with this. But then she refers to God and she cries out to him and she says this, oh, Lord of hosts, would you look upon my affliction? Would you see me? Would you remember me? Don't forget me. I want you to understand how profound this is. One commentator put it this way, that she addresses Yahweh of hosts, cosmic ruler, sovereign of every and all power, and yet she assumes that the broken heart of a relatively obscure woman in the hill country of Ephraim matters to the heart of this God. That means this, that in a place like Carrollton on a little hill and a shoebox of a church, God hears you. God hears you. The pattern throughout biblical history God shows us time and time again is that God hears the lowly and the broken and the crushed and the forsaken and the discarded. Do you believe that? 
Do you believe that God cares about one obscure, lonely life in Carrollton? The woman whose husband has left her, and you're wondering how you're going to provide, God hears you. To the woman who has faced yet another miscarriage, and you're crying out, God hears you. To the one battling depression and wonders when the darkness will lift, God hears you. And it is that truth that sets Hannah free to pray out of the heaviness of her soul, to pour out her emotional guts before the Lord's, and her bitterness of soul with many fears out of grief and despair, she prays out her anguish. And here's why. Because God allows her to do that. Yahweh allows her to do that. Heard the story recently of a pastor who spoke at a, a, a Christian school, at a Christian college, and after his, his, his talk, a number of students lined up in front of the stage to talk to him, and he sees in line a young girl who had been at the school for a couple of years, a girl who had grown up in his church, and he knew that just a couple months earlier, this young girl had lost her mother. Her mother had passed away. And so he was looking forward to seeing this girl and having her come to the front of the line so that he could comfort her and offer her his condolences. And when she got up to him, he said this. He said, oh my, you must be so crushed at the death of your mother. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. My mom is in a better place. She's not experiencing any more sorrow or suffering or anguish. It's okay. It's okay. He said, but yeah, but you had a really great mother. I mean, she walked with you. You're the kind of mom that you would want to go home to and share your life with and call on the weekends and, and talk about what's going on. And, and she's gone. That's got to be crushing you. And she said, no, 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 no. No, God works all things together. We're rejoicing. We're rejoicing that mom's gone. The pastor looked at her and said, listen, if your mother has passed away and she, you're not going to see her anymore and your response is just everything's okay, there's actually something very terribly wrong with you. And with that, the girl let loose, and she began to weep. And she threw herself in his chest. And in the midst of her sobs, she said this, I miss my mom so much, but I wasn't sure I was allowed to. Yahweh invites you to bring your tears and your cries and your anguish to him. We'll be done with the fake niceties when we begin to realize that. And you might actually begin to cry ugly tears. Not the sweet tears that roll down your face and you do this. I mean the real ugly ones. Now the anguish for some of you is this. Because I know some of you have done this. As you say, I, ha- I did that. I've cried my eyes out. And I feel, I'm not singing. (laughs) There ain't no joy and peace. Well, the turning point, I think there's something else that has to go on in our side of our souls. That's the third part of the story, and that's Hannah's promise. Verse 11 is an odd place for us. Hannah makes a vow. She says, God, if you'll remember me, if you'll not forsake me, and if you'll give me a little boy a son, then I will give him to you all the days of his life. And not only that, but I'll, I'll, no razor will ever touch his head. I won't ever give him a haircut. Sounds like, the, you know, sounds like a great vow. Um, what's going on here? 
What does it sound like she's doing? It sounds like she's bargaining with God, doesn't it? It sounds like the guy in the trenches or like the guy who's, you know, it's like, God, if you can get me out of here, I'll give everything to you. And if you just do that, you get me out of this situation, I'll do something for you. This sounds like compromise. This sounds like bargaining. That's not what's going on, though. You see, you have to understand this is that um, Hannah's son, she would have, she, he would have been in the Levitical line. He would have been a priest. That would have been a part of his role. He already would have gone to work in the tabernacle a couple times a year. And yet what she is saying here, she is referring to something that is tucked away in number six, where it talks about these particular people who would give themselves to the service of God and God's people in a very special way. It was called the Nazarite vow, where they would take, they would say, I'm going to give my life fully to you in a special way. And they would have certain rights, physical signs and practices that they would take on as a part of this vow. For, for instance, instance, not drinking alcohol or not cutting their hair. That's what's going on here. She's saying, God, I will give my son to you as a Nazarite vow. But you also notice this. She says, I will give him to you for the rest of his life. And that's exactly what, we do, what she does. We don't, we don't read it here. We, didn't, we skipped past it this morning. But what she does is she, when her son is about three years old after she, he has been weaned, he, she brings him to the tabernacle and she, he doesn't live with her for the rest of his life. Do you understand what's going on here? The boy that was going to give her acceptance and love and financial protection. And the, the boy that would give her status as she walked through her village. And everybody would say, that's Hannah's boy right there. She's saying, I'll give him up. I'll give him up. Tim Keller says this, and I think it's so poignant as to what she's saying about giving this son up to the Lord. She's saying, all of my life, I have asked for a son to be given for my sake. But now I'm asking for a son for your sake, Lord. I want a son so that my son cannot serve my needs, but so that my son can serve your needs, God. In other words, what she is doing here is she is saying, God, I trust you so much, and you satisfy my soul so much, and I love you so much that I am willing to subservient, make my, my dreams and my desires subservient to serving you. That what I want more than a son is I want you, God. I want you. And so she gave up her son. She gave him up. Some of you are thinking this. This is all. This is all just a little bit too clean. This is a little bit too fairy taleish. In fact, you actually look. You might have that feeling if you look throughout the Bible when all these barren women suddenly, like, they turn to the Lord and then they're pregnant all of a sudden. And we hear these kind of these, these kind of statements now, right? I've heard statement after statement after statement where someone would be like, "Yeah, we were struggling with infertility issues, and we finally decided to go towards adoption, and it was then we got pregnant." It was probably just, you know, we finally gave it up to the Lord. Or we finally said, God, you're, I said something like, God, you're all I need. And we stopped even trying. And it was then that we got pregnant. These are, these, these are manipulative kind of thoughts. You have these, even this experience for young adults who say, man, when I finally decided to give up dating, that's when God gave me the one. As if we're doing some bargaining with God. That's not what she does here. And I want, she actually want you to see that the, the, the thing, the, the, what's going on here is it's not a sweet little bow where God gives her exactly what she wants, and then she feels peace. It's not, God, I need a baby, and God gives her a baby, and now she's like, God, I love you so much. I want you to see is the love for God and the peace came before the baby. You see, we look on in the promise here, what you have to see is when, when Hannah has peace. You have to notice, what we, we think we assume some certain things in the text. We think that what Eli says to her is that she's going to have a baby. Does he say that to her? 
No. There's no promise to Hannah that she's going to have a child. When she leaves the tabernacle and she goes out and she, her, her demeanor is different and she's eating again and she feels peace and joy, has she, is she pregnant yet? No. God has not promised her a baby. She doesn't, she's not pregnant. And yet, what we see is peace precedes pregnancy. It goes promise, peace, pregnancy. We think in terms of the way, uh, the happy, like, kind of manipulative way we would think about it is, man, I'll promise God something, then he'll give me a baby, and then I'll have peace. But what I want you to see here is what is ultimate to her is God himself. Now, what she is saying is what I need to satisfy me is not, God, if you, even if you don't give me a baby, because here, here's, here, here's the issue that I would, I would be concerned about you to walk out of here with is this, as you would say, God, if I just promise you something like this, then you're going to give me what I asked for. Well, that may not be this, the case. God may be asking you this, would you promise to give me your life even if I don't give you a baby? Even if I don't give you a spouse? Am I enough? Am I enough? She didn't have anything yet, but she had God. What I want you to see, this is the greatest, this is actually what your heart most needs. You see, what Hannah has run into here is for all her life, she's maybe been listening to the lies of the culture and the lies of her husband that you will be satisfied, you'll be okay, your life will be filled with purpose and significance if you have a husband or if you have children. And finally, she is saying, no, the only thing that will satisfy me is God. And this is the story of the Bible. Because the story of the Bible is this, is that we are created to be connected to God, to be satisfied by him and by him alone. And you know what we found in Genesis 3 is that when Adam and Eve separated themselves from God and they removed themselves from them, is we are now disconnected from God. And we have a nagging voice in us, a screaming inside of us that says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. That's why we work too much. It's why we drink too much. It's why we yell too much. It's why we can't ever be in a quiet room. We have to have a podcast or music or a TV always on because we're scared of the nagging voice that would say, you're disconnected from God. We're scared of that voice. But what we need is God more than anything else. And that's who God knows that we need is himself. Josh Ryback is a, wrote a spiritual mem- memoir entitled Heroes and Monsters. And he, in it, he has this kind of this conversation with God. And this is God's answer to him at one place, a sense that he has. This is not Bible, but this is what he sensed that he was hearing from the Lord. I think it's consistent with the scriptures. Here's what God says to Josh. You may not like me, but you know me. Even those who don't know me know me. In the chaos of the wind and the perfect cadence of the tide, you know me. In a bride's happy giggle and the stampeding rhino, you know me and you feel me. And something deep inside of you wants to return to me. I know this. So when you cry for help, when you cry for hope, for some kind of relief, for your insides to be warmed, for destiny, for something, you are actually crying for me. When you're not even sure who or what it is that you're crying out for, you're crying out for me. Whether you know it or not, I am I am, I am all that you're crying for. That's why G.J. Chesterton said, when a man knocks on the door of a brothel, what he's really looking for is God, not sex. So there's an, what we most need is we need God himself. You know, it, so often there's great struggles we find with Christian men, and it's good. We struggle with it. We're actually in the fight. But as men struggle with lust and pornography, and this is becoming also more and more of an issue for young women as well, but it's this. We think that the answer for our struggle in pornography is to get accountability. 
or to get a filter on our computer, and those are really good things. You should do those things today. But I also want you to see this. When David, when, as we're going to see later on in 2 Samuel chapter 11, when he sins with Bathsheba, sins against her, and in Psalm chapter 51, when he repents of his sin before the Lord, does David come before the Lord and say, Lord, please give me an accountability partner. Lord, please give me a one-story house so I can no longer see women bathing around the community. Is that what he prays? No, what he prays is this, give me back the joy of my salvation. In other words, what he's saying is what I need in order to defeat this sin is to experience God again. To be satisfied in who he is again. When a man knocks at the door of a brothel, when a man is getting on his computer and he's seeking to satisfy his longing and his search and his painful pursuit of significance, when a man works every weekend, he is trying to silence the inner voice of hurt in his heart that says, you can only be satisfied by God and you're separated from him. When a teenage girl screams for a cell phone, she's not screaming for a cell phone. She's screaming to be satisfied by God. When a young man plays a sport, every, a new sport every season, he is not looking for Ultimately, for the sound of the crowd cheering him, he's looking for the voice of God that says you are accepted and you are loved. That's why why David says in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for the Lord. Listen, you'll never go from the place of despair into delight until you've realized this, that God is the delight of my heart. So God is what you long for. Until you pray like David does in Psalm 27, the one thing, one thing I ask, is to have God, to gaze upon him. And yet, you know what? You'll never want God like that until you'll see that he gazes upon you like that. And how do we know that? You see, isn't it nice, isn't it nice that we have this sweet story in the Bible of this broken, barren woman who gets a baby? We love stories like this. But does God still do this today? Is this, is this just this kind of antiquated, ancient Near East, sweet fable that goes way back, and we love this story, and it's sweet, it's nice. It says something about, generally something about God. How do we know that God is going to be like this for us? Actually, we see it in Hannah's song. In Hannah's song. Man, there's so much here in Hannah's song, I have to move through it quickly to bring us to a close. But here's what I want you to see in Hannah's song. tells us that not only did God lift her up out of sorrow, but this is God's pattern for all of time. God loves to take the broken and make them whole. He loves, you see it in her prayer over and over and over again. He takes the barren and gives her seven children. He takes the poor and he makes them rich. He takes the powerless and he makes them powerful. It makes them strong. This is what God does. This is the pattern that God has. You just see the logic of Hannah's prayer. That she, God is not simply doing this for her as a one-off time to display that he's a good guy. But this is actually the pattern of, of what God does for us because this flows out of the character of who God is. To bring the lowly up and to demonstrate in a full-scale model how great God is. And where has God demonstrated his his full-scale model of bringing the weak to strength, the poor to richness? He did it himself. And he did it through another young woman who prayed a prayer and had some odd pregnancy things going on. (laughs) You see, there's this odd place in the end, very end of Hannah's prayer where she says... I'm looking to the Lord, and the Lord is going to provide for his anointed, for his king. You know what? At this point, Israel has no king. So what in the world is she praying about? Well, the original readers of 1 Samuel would be like, she's talking about, she's praying about Israel needing a true and better king. And, and that's how the lowly will be raised up. And that's how Israel will be raised up. And that's how Israel will go from poverty to riches. And that's what will throw off our oppressors. Well, that may be true. 
But you know what? If you read First and Second Samuel, you're going to find that as great as David is, he screws up quite a bit. And that he is ultimately not the true and better king that we need. And that prophetically, she may not have been knowing it, and she probably didn't know it. That what she's pointing to there is the Lord's anointed. The anointed is the one, that's what kings would have. But that's also what Christ, Messiah, means. And it's the same thing that a young woman prays a thousand years later when Mary cries out if she's been met with an angel. And she prays her great Magnificat prayer. It has the exact same themes as Hannah's prayers. That through, in, in Hannah, she holds a baby and she goes, man, this is who you are, God. You know what happens with Mary? Is she's holding a baby and she's going, he's come. The one who's going to make the weak strong and the one who's going to take the impoverished rich. That's who this is. And so she sings a song that has the exact same themes as Hannah's song. And what we find in her son, Jesus Christ, is we have a king who comes and his pattern, his pattern even in salvation, is not just simply to make the weak rich and the poor strong and the barren fruitful, but actually he becomes the weak himself. How does God win our salvation? Was it through strength or through weakness? He became killable by going to a cross. God becomes weak, he becomes broken, he becomes oppressed. In Jesus Christ, so that he might win for us the opportunity to be rich and to be strong and to be fruitful. And so you may be looking here today, you feel helpless and you feel weak and you feel defeated. I want you to understand this. This is the pattern of when God has always invaded. If you're weak and helpless and humbled and humiliated and ashamed today, that's actually the place right where God loves to work. And to bring his salvation to bear. Because God begins where human hope ends. And when you come to a place of going, I am weak. And you begin to run. You run to the king who is to come. A true and better king who will lead you into life. That's when you actually begin to experience delight. That's when you actually begin to sing. True and better king that we need. The son that we actually need who is born is Jesus. He is the only one who will satisfy your souls. Have you run to him in all your ugly tears, in all your brokenness, in all your barrenness? Would you lay it at his feet? And he says, I will fill you up. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for those particularly in this room. I I felt the Spirit of God at a poignant moment. Lord, I pray for those particularly in this room who um, feel burdened by depression. I pray for those in this room who've lost babies and they long to be mothers. Oh, Spirit of the living God, I pray that um, you would meet them as we sang and abide with them. And Lord, what I would love for these folks is that the depression rises, rises and they see the light and that they would have children. And as much as I long for that for them, Lord, I know what they need more than anything else is to know that Jesus, Jesus is the perfect husband. That Jesus is the, is the one who came for them. That Jesus is the one who will satisfy. That Jesus is the one who is the lifter of our heads. That even when we don't feel good, when life feels dark, that the truth of the gospel is there is light in Jesus. 
and that as hard as it is that they would run to you and they'd cry out to you day in and day out, and Spirit of the living God, they would experience your presence in deep and mighty ways. You would make, that you would satisfy their hearts and their souls. Oh, do that for me, Lord. Do that for me. I repent of the places I look at that I seek to satisfy me. And they confess and profess that you're enough. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.